is told of a pastor, Dr. Newman Hall, who was a contemporary and a friend of the famed Baptist pastor, C.H. Spurgeon. And in that day, Dr. Hall himself was popular. People knew who he was. In fact, he authored a book titled, Come to Jesus. Shortly after writing the book, though, he was criticized by a fellow pastor. I don't know whether it was through letter or through verbal confrontation, but this uh, rival pastor, the Dr. Hall, began to challenge and criticize him, and it infuriated Dr. Hall because everything of which he was being accused was unfounded. So being great with word and able to express his thoughts in written form, he decided he would write a scathing letter to his adversary. And so he wrote that letter, and shortly thereafter, he contacted his friend, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and said, would you just review this before I send this letter? Spurgeon read it. He looked at it. The man asked, what do you think? Dr. Hall asked, what do you think? He said, it's a brilliant letter. He said, you did a great job with it. You set that guy in his place. It was well written, but it just lacks one thing. Dr. Hall said, what? He said, you need to add beneath your name, author of Come to Jesus. Dr. Hall, receptive of that counsel, shredded that letter and never sent it. And the point is this, when we're a Christian, we're to act differently. When we carry the name of Christ, how we respond to criticisms is to be different. How we speak is to be more righteous and seasoned with grace. Bitterness, uncontrolled rage, unrighteous anger, malice is not to mark the believer identifying with Jesus Christ means something. And part of the reason the world is in the situation that it's in today is the church is not setting the pace. We're not living as a distinct people. And so we're going to look at that today. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. It says, uh, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he has to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, for you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we look today again here in Ephesians chapter 4 in the conduct of of the Christian. Father, our conduct does not make us a Christian, but Lord, if we are a Christian, our conduct should be distinct from the world. Father, we're living in days of chaos. We're living in days of confusion, in days of bitterness and griping and hatred and 
and, and just all types of anger and speech that's unbecoming. But Father, help us to be a light in this world, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at um, the unbelieving or unregenerate life, if you were here with us last week, and, and, and very simply, we looked at four things that characterize the person who does not know Jesus Christ. Now, these were general characterizations. There are many other things. We're going to look at some specifics today. But last week, uh, Paul is writing that, that, that the Christian, or the rather the unbelieving life, is a life of ignorance. It's a life where someone doesn't know God. And so we may not make that an excuse for someone's conduct, but it would certainly be an explanation the person does not know the Lord. But secondly, it's a life of hardness toward God's truth, we saw. And then we also said, thirdly, it's a lifeless life, which sounds ironic. They seem not to go together. But while someone may have a physical life, they do not have the spiritual life that comes from God through Jesus Christ. And then finally, we saw the life described as an unrestrained, uncontrolled life. And so generally, we can look at all of these things and say, this characterizes the unbelieving life. Well, today we're going to continue to look at the subject of the unregenerate life. We're going to compare the saved life to that life. But today we're going to look at some specific characterizations, some specific characters or traits or representations of the unbelieving life. And we're going to see that these things are inconsistent with the Christian life. That if we're a Christian, if we have these traits that are of unbelievers, it just doesn't sit right. You know, I was reading this past week of some sayings that just make us scratch our heads and wonder about the people who breathed these words. Andy Warhol once said, I'm a deeply superficial person. Yogi Berra, who said some of the funniest things probably in the last half century, said this, I never said most of the things I said. I like what Samuel Goldwyn, the producer, said, include me out. Mohsen Hamid, who was a Pakistani um, writer, said this, and, and I've never thought about, if you're reading a self-help book, is that really self-help? Think about it. These things, as we look at it, they just don't make sense. And when the world sees someone who professes Christ living in a way that's ungodly, it doesn't make sense. They scratch their heads, and it affects our witness. And so today, we're going to look at four attributes of the unbelieving life, and we're going to contrast that with positive traits that should mark us as believers. And the first thing of the unbelieving life is lying. That's what it says in verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. He's speaking to the church there, and he's speaking about these horizontal relationships, and he's saying not to lie. Now, we know that Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said that in John 8, 44. And we're never more like the devil than when we lie. But in contrast, we're never 
more like the Lord Jesus Christ when we speak truth. Paul says in verse 25 that we're to put away lying. Remember the, uh, the, the picture that we had last week as we looked at putting away and putting on. It's that clothing uh, of putting away and discarding uh, dirty and unclean clothing and replacing that with that which is fit for what you're preparing to do. And so he, he continues with that analogy here of casting off the things that are not to mark the Christian life. There's to be no place for falsehood in the Christian's life. Many times, though, it does characterize us. And we begin to uh, rationalize or justify not speaking the truth. We speak of little white lies. But most of the time, when we lie, we're primarily serving ourselves. Think about these reasons that people might lie. We might lie to please people. We desire to please people more than God, and so we'll lie and tell them uh, what they want to hear so that they will think better of us. Sometimes we will lie to mislead. Uh, there was a girl that I went out with one time. I decided after one time I wasn't so sure, but she wasn't so sure. And so she would call my house, and she was a cute girl. She couldn't see very well. You know, I don't know what she saw in me. But um, I was a little shy at that time, and so she called my house, and I told my sister, I'm going to stand outside on the front door, and you just say he's not in, all right? And so when this literally happened, my sister, not only did we play stupid games when we were young, but she was my accomplice in stating a mistruth. He's not in. Well, what was I doing? I was deceiving, wasn't I? I, I was speaking literally what may be the truth, but the intent of that was to lead someone to think otherwise. Sometimes we'll lie to protect. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around just throwing out criticisms or throwing out the truth. That doesn't mean that if I have an ugly tie on today and, and you say that's an ugly tie, that doesn't mean the first thing you say is, Rick, that was an ugly tie. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you just throw out. Sometimes it's just best to say nothing. But we're not to lie to protect. We're not to lie to make oneself look good. Lying is a sin, and it is not consistent in any form with a believer's life. But there's a second attribute that describes the unregenerate life that should mark the Christian, and that is unrighteous and unrestrained anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Paul gives two commands in regard to anger here. The first is this. If you are angry, be angry but do not sin. Is it possible to be angry and not sin? Yes, it is. How do we know? Jesus was angry and he was sinless. Jesus was angry when the money changers were taking advantage of people in the temple area. And you know what would happen in that day. Uh, you had a captive audience. People needed money. They had traveled in to the holy city and they would charge exorbitant interest or they would overcharge in, in order to pocket the difference. And Jesus became angry, and you know what he did? He turned over the money changers' temple, uh, tables in the temple. Why was that? Well, his anger was motivated by two things. They were treating the house of God as if it were unsacred. So it was about the Father. 
and they were taking advantage of other people. And Jesus didn't like it, and he became angry. You know, there are two clear areas where anger is okay for the believer. Now, I realize these are general statements. There may be others, but you think about it. Over a clear injustice. That should anger us. If someone is not treated fairly, that is a reason to become angry. Well, we're going to see it doesn't mean you stew over that anger, but, but we should be bothered by injustices. And the second thing is personal sin. We should be angry over it, all right, convicted over it and angry. Many times we're angry over other people's sin, and we're not angry over our own sin. So there is a righteous anger when God convicts us and we say, God, you're right, I'm angry that I'm acting this way, so angry that I'm going to make a change. That's a righteous indignation. When we see an injustice, when somebody is being abused or mistreated, then it's right to be angry. We're going to see not only are you not to sin in your anger, though, but you're not to stew in your anger. You're not to let it become settled. Even a righteous indignation has a place. Jesus didn't turn over and over and over again the tables. He turned it over to make a point. We're not to uh, stay in a state of anger. Paul warned about not letting the sun go down in our anger. We have our young people here today, and so I've, I have the extra challenge. Fifth Sunday, we don't have children's church. I've got to keep their attention. But when I was you guys' age, there was a show that came on the Waltons, and I used to love it. It came on Thursday nights. It was like 8 or 9 o'clock, and it, it might bore y'all, but it's a great, it was a great show. But one thing about the Waltons, you could count 8.59 every week the last minute of the show, they would show a broad picture of the house and the lights would be on and, and Mary Ellen would say, good night, John boy, John boy, good night, Grandpa. And at the end of the day, the whole house was peaceful. Everybody had say, said, if Ben were upset with John boy, by that night everything was settled. Everybody said good night and they played that little song right at the end that was so peaceful. So whenever I read this, I think of the Walton's principle. We're not to allow anger to take control of our lives. There may be a time for it, but notice what he warns about. In verse 31, he warns about bitterness. Bitterness is a settled state that involves an unforgiving spirit towards someone, and it's wrong for us as Christians who have received God's forgiveness to be embittered towards somewhere else, someone else. Then there's the word that's translated anger here. There's anger and wrath. Wrath is thumos, and, and that means a, an outburst of anger. You've seen someone, man, they explode, and then the next minute, they're just fine. They got over it, all right? Uh, but there's also that word anger, orge, which carries the idea of a settled anger. Both of these are wrong, but we're certainly not to let anger take over our lives. The problem when we have unresolved anger and we have unrighteous anger is it begins to affect our whole person and it affects our witness. We're to get rid of it. And then we come to stealing. Let the thief steal no longer. Contentment is to mark our lives. An understanding of rightful possession is to mark our lives. One of the biggest areas that believers transgress in this 
is not giving a day's work for a day's pay. Listen to these statistics. 18.5% of workers waste three hours plus a day. That's 780 hours in a year. Think about that. Four in five workers, many Christians, admit to wasting time at work. As I look at the work situation today, we're in a work crisis in this country. How many of us have said people just aren't doing their job? May it never be said of us as Christians. May it never be said. The thief is to steal no longer. What about Zacchaeus? What did Zacchaeus do? When he realized he did wrong, he was pierced to the heart. He was convicted over it, and he repented and acted in accordance. He gave back everything and multiplied that even more. His repentance was to not steal. But then the fourth thing is foul language. It says in verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth. I was with a group of friends a number of years ago. It was a group of Christian guys, probably five or six. Uh, I was actually in Tennessee, and this guy began to just talk like somebody was like a dirty joke or something foul. And I'll never remember, never forget, rather, David Landreth, I remember well, uh, he's since passed away. Um, but he said, man, what are you, a sailor? And that was what he, he, it was his way of saying, you're a Christian, why are you speaking like a sailor? You know, as Christians, vulgar language is not to be part of our lives. I, I was in the car a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening to a commercial on the radio. I think it was a commercial. I couldn't tell whether it was a comedian or commercial because it was something that was really ironic. I'd never thought of it before. And think about this. Why is it when someone speaks to an inanimate object nicely, we want to have them committed in a mental institution, but if someone stumps a toe on that thing and cusses it out, we think it's normal. Think about that. In that characteristic of our time, that's food for thought. Our language is to be a positive witness. Well, let's look real quickly at what God expects. Verse 25, instead of lying, speaking the truth. Verse 25 says, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we're part of a family. It affects the whole family. We're members one, of another, one to another. We're to be people of the truth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your word is to be your bond. Speak the truth. And live in the truth. As people of the truth, would it be truthful? Secondly, resolve anger issues right now. Anger is a real emotion. It can be a rightful emotion, but it can be very damaging. Because honestly, most of the time when we're angry, we're not motivated by righteous things. We're motivated to defend ourselves or to make our stand. If we're harboring anger toward one another, we're wrong. We're to resolve the anger issues. Jesus said the same Sermon on the Mount. If you're standing, you're ready to offer your gift at the altar, and you realize your brother has something against you, go make 
yourself right and then come back and offer. Now, uh, I understand we don't have responsibility over how someone responds to us. It takes two to tango. But in regard to us, we're to resolve the anger issues. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, verse 32, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ Jesus. And it's very interesting in verse 27, right after he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, he says, don't give the devil an opportunity because the devil wants to divide. Maybe today you need to resolve some anger issue, do everything within your power to make a wrong right. Third, work and share. Instead of stealing, we're to work. Notice what it says, verse 28, the thief is to no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. A Christian should be the hardest worker in the workplace. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, as freezing fire and dry water don't go together, a lazy Christian doesn't go together. And people listen. They hear your witness. They know you have the Bible. They know what you say. But if you're not working, it's a poor witness. Your work is to be a primary of your um, witness. So rather than taking wrongly, work to earn money. There are a lot of ways that aren't great ways to earn money. One is gambling. You ever thought of uh, Pete Rose did not, was not allowed to go into uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame for gambling, but what are they doing now? You can't turn the football games on today without professional gambling going on. Uh, the deceased pastor, Dr. Adrian Rogers, put it best. He said, God's economy is a win-win economy. If I go and work for Chris, he gets to labor. That's his win. I'm remunerated. That's my win. He said, but the problem with the gambling industry is the whole thing is based on a win-lose. For everyone who wins, there have to be many who lose. And listen to me. It is not helping the poor. One of the things that broke my heart, we were traveling back from Greensboro. We picked uh, my mother-in-law up back uh, before Christmas, and I saw grandparents sitting there letting a, a little six-year-old scratch. And I'm thinking, what are they, rather than teaching the Word of God, they're teaching them to, to, for a pipe dream. And, and guess what? They won three or six dollars. Guess what? They bought three more dollar ones or whatever, and it was all gone. Isn't it better to work? To work earn money. But Paul doesn't stop there. We're to work so that we can share. Now listen to this. In thievery, we take what's not ours. In sharing, we give what is ours. You see that contrast? Christians are called to be generous. Not only hard workers, but we should be generous. Richly from God we've see, received, liberally we should give. But then the fourth thing was speak positive words. Are you a person who's always critical? I learned years ago I was at a, a basketball camp and there was a very high-level high school coach that was at this camp. And, and um, I realized why he was high-level. I was jumping and we were trying to go how high and he was behind me. Not only did he understand the fundamentals and the X's and O's, he understood motivation. He got behind me. He said, you can do better. You can do better. Guess what? I did better. It is said that it takes seven positive words to offset one negative word. 
It has also been said, listen to this, the average child hears 400 negative words a day at school or whatever. You can't do this. You're this. You're that. 400 negative words a day. That equals 146,000 negative words per year. And the way I understand, that means you have to have about a million positive words to offset that. In our homes and in the church, our kids need to hear positive, positive things. And we need to share positive things. So as we look at this, we've looked at what's not to characterize our lives, what is to, but in each case, it's not just enough to avoid the negative. We must turn that around and turn it into something positive. Instead of falsehood, the truth. Instead of taking, giving. Instead of lying, telling the truth. Instead of speaking words down to edify. Well, I want to look at the fourth. We're almost through here. I want to look at this fourth attribute and as we look at the truth. Because whenever we see this, if you're like I, you say, I want to be more truthful. I want to be uh, more giving. I want this. I want that. But many times we can become frustrated in even our efforts. But let's look at the fourth attribute, speech. If we're going to live a genuine Christian life, then our speech should depict that. In James 3, James writes about the believer's speech, and he says this, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made uh, like God in his image. And then he says in the next verse, this shouldn't be. In other words, he says, our speech is good to God, but then we criticize or we speak down a brother. And he, he poses this rhetorical question. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? I thought about that a number of years. And basically, borrowing from our lingo today, the mouth is just the spigot. The well is from the heart. What comes out of the mouth is what's in the well. If, if there's dirty water in the well, guess what? Out of the spigot is going to come dirt. If there's pure water in the well, what's going to come out? It's going to come out pure. So applying it, whether it be bursts of anger, settled anger, lying, stealing, or ungodly language, the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. That's why in Proverbs 4.23 it says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. We pray, God, give us hearts that are consistent with you. Give us pure hearts. But I don't want to leave you today without a way to apply it. Because we match that prayer by action. There's something I've noticed. I call it the mall principle. I was a child of the 80s. The mall principle is this. When you go to the mall, birds of a feather flock together. You'll see a group of four or five. They look alike. They dress alike. They act alike, whether it be guys or girls. Some people do call it birds of a feather flock together. Others call it imprinting. You become like those you're around. We see it all the time. When I was at, at uh, I was getting ready to say at seminary, we didn't have uh, fraternities in seminary, but when I was in college, you would see fraternities. The guys would dress alike. They would look alike. They had opinions that were alike. They were the way they were by association. So as we look at this spiritually today, how am I going to be more forgiving? How am I going to be 
more honest? How am I going to be more giving? It's spending time with God. Because the more you're with God in prayer, in the study of his word, not just studying for knowledge, but opening your heart to God, the more time spent with God, the more you become like he is. And then these things just naturally come from your heart. So as we look at these things, it's not that we have a checklist here. It's that God, I'm a sinner. Left to myself, I'll tell a half-truth. Left to myself, I'll not work as I ought. But God, change my heart. God, work in my heart. Make me more like you. Genuine Christianity, all of these positive attributes come from the heart. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you for it. And Father, these things that are listed that are not to characterize our lives, for some of us today, they may right now characterize. Father, forgive us. Convict us. But Lord, more than anything, we need to be more like you. We need to spend time with you. The more time we spend alone with you, the more time we spend in your word and in sincere prayer, then, Lord, the more we'll become like you. And so as we have entered this new year, I pray this would be a year where we would, would allow you, the vine, the branch. We're the branch, Lord. You're the vine. God, the Father, the root. Lord, I pray today that this year, we would be more like Christ and carry out these positive characteristics in the Christian life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn number.